First Peter chapter 2, verse 2 is part of the passage I'm going to be teaching on today, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word. Now, I was reading that verse, and it reminded me of a household chore that we have to do from time to time, and uh, like the part about the milk there, that is cleaning out the refrigerator, right? I don't know how often you clean out your refrigerator. I'm, I don't want to see a show of hands or anything. We tend to do that on a weekly basis. We do Our garbage day is on Tuesday when the garbage man comes and picks up, and so on Monday night, that's typically when we start rummaging through the refrigerator. And we look at those sell-by dates and use-by dates and anything that's gone past that, out it goes. Now, honestly, I did a little research. Did you know, and you, maybe you do know this, the sell-by date is for inventory control in the grocery store. It's not an expiration date, and that's true of the use-by date as well. That's Use-by date is when that food is most flavorful. Um, so you can still eat or drink those items beyond those dates. They're not expiration dates, but we don't. We're very persnickety that way, and me even more so than my wife Tammy. So we start cleaning things out. But every once in a while, something gets past us. So a couple of weeks ago, I pulled out the little crisper drawer, and down in the back and underneath the crisper drawer, what must have been a strawberry at one time <laughs> had fallen down there. I really wasn't sure. It's all covered with fuzz and mold and so nasty. You got to get in there and clean out that fridge. And I want to press that analogy a little bit and use the, um, the analogy of the refrigerator for our lives. We want to do some self-examination from time to time and look for UFOs, unidentified fridge objects in our lives and get those out. And it's kind of where Peter is going in 1 Peter chapter 2 today. Now, I should do a little bit of review we're going back to a sermon series that I had started last year toward the end of the year, and we paused for Thanksgiving and Christmas, but it's called Keys to the Kingdom. And that's because Jesus said to his disciple Peter, uh, uh, Matthew 16, 18, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So what was that? A statement of apostolic authority. You've got the keys. You've got the authority. You're an apostle. So what an apostle says goes. And of course, the apostolic circle wrote the New Testament, and the New Testament is authoritative for our lives. A lot of times we believe that, uh, a lot of us believe, Peter first used the keys to the kingdom of heaven on the day of Pentecost when he preached the first gospel sermon to throngs of Jews, and he said, basically, Jesus was the Son of God, your Messiah, you killed your Messiah. The people were cut to the heart, and they said, what do we do? And Peter replied in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call unto himself. All right, insert key, open lock, open the door to the kingdom of heaven. And 3,000 people were baptized and became a part of God's kingdom at that point. We could call that the salvation key, but that's not the, the, the only teaching about the kingdom that's important to us. That's the beginning. That's where we start. But Jesus' apostles had learned many other truths uh, that they wanted to pass on, and we get some of these in First and Second Peter. So today is the cleaning key, and we're going to look at some of the stuff we should get out of, of our lives and other, another thing that we should crave and always have in our lives. So first of all, nasty stuff to throw away. Nasty stuff to throw away. First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. 
Now, this, this business of putting aside, it's not just here in Peter. We see this throughout the New Testament. There are commands to put away, put off, put off the old man, do away with the sin that so easily entangles us, put aside sin and sinful activities. This is actions that we Christians must take. God doesn't do this for us. We must do this. Now, we do it in concert with God. God helps us in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. We can't just do it by willpower alone, but still, we have our part to do, and God helps us to do that. We must put aside certain things. And so there are five that are enumerated here by Peter. So I don't want any of you coming over to my house and inspecting my refrigerator. And I don't want to go to your house and look in your refrigerator. But today, we're each going to look in our own refrigerator. We're going to do some self-examination, look in our lives. Each one of us does the work for ourselves. So I'm going to break this down with these five words. Number one, malice. And we just do a little bit of a word study here. You probably know what malice is, but malice is ill will. It's having an evil heart or wishing harm on someone else. We want to look in our hearts and make sure there's no one for whom we have ill will or to whom we wish harm. Malice is, is deadly, really. Think in the Old Testament of Cain and Abel, these two brothers. And Cain had malice toward his brother Abel. And God said to him, look, sin is crouching at your door. You must conquer it or it will master you. God knew that Cain had malice in his heart. Cain did not conquer that malice. The sin mastered Cain. And as a result, what did he do? He murdered his brother, Abel. It's no wonder Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21, you've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. If you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus was letting us know even the malice in our heart is dangerous, and we need to remove that. Now, the other four words we're going to look at, in one sense, are expressions of malice. All right, the second word here is deceit. The, the word in the original language is dolos, and it means not only lying and purposefully deceiving someone, but also trickery, cunning with words, telling half-truths. Think of your average teenager. I could say that in a service. I don't think there's any teenagers in here. But remember how we were teens, and we could be so cunning with, with our words. When Nathaniel came to Jesus to be one of his disciples, and Jesus said, Behold, uh, an Israelite in whom there is no dolos, in whom there is no guile, no deceit, no cunning, no trickery with his words. Uh, I'm going to say a phrase here, and many of us will be able to remember just from this phrase, who said it. Uh, the phrase is this, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Or do you remember that? It depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Who said that? Bill Clinton said that when he was being deposed about the Monica Lewinsky affair. And that became an infamous phrase for someone who's being cunning and tricky and parsing their words. We're, Jesus said, let your yes be yes or your no be no. We're not only not to lie, but we're not to try and shade the meanings of how we talk to sort of protect ourselves. In the Old Testament, 
in Genesis chapter 12 and again in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham, on two occasions, when he's introducing his wife Sarah, his wife Sarah introduces her as his sister because he's introducing her to kings who have great authority. She's a beautiful woman. He's afraid if they know she's his wife, they might kill him in order to get her. So he introduces her as his sister. Now, was Sarah Abraham's sister? Sort of. Sort of. She was his half-sister. Same father, different mother. All right. They did that back then. You thought that originated in the Appalachians, but no. <laughs> no. Down, 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 down. They did that back then. So it was half true, but it was also half false. It was a half lie. And it was malicious because it brought evil and harm into the lives of of those two men, those two kings that he had introduced that way, and the people that they ruled over. And it probably didn't do a whole lot for his marriage and his relationship with Sarah. Okay, so get rid of all deceit. Malice, we want to replace with love. Deceit, we want to re replace with honesty in our lives. Here's the third word, hypocrisy. Comes from the word hypocrisis, transliterated, really. It referred to the masks that actors wore in those ancient times when they're doing their comedies or their dramas. And it came to mean someone whose public persona was different from who they were in their private life. Again, in this uh, past week's one-year Bible reading, you got Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is excoriating the Pharisees, the religious teachers and leaders of his day, seven times, what does he call them? Hypocrites. You hypocrites, you're wearing a mask. He said, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You're all nice and white, clean on the outside, on the inside, full of dead men's bones. He's, this is why we have to do that. We have to look inside and clean ourselves out with God's help. It seems like every other day in the news cycles now, you'll see some politician who has mandated masks for the people in their state and has forbidden social gatherings. Politician. Only to find out what? A couple days later, when they think no one is looking, someone takes video or pictures of them unmasked and partying with their friends. This is literally hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. We, we can, it's so plain. But we don't have to look necessarily to the politicians to see hypocrisy. Sometimes we can look in the mirror. I've been there. You may have been there. We need to take off our mask, number one, by confessing sin in our lives. And number two, and even the better way, is never to do anything we know is wrong or that we know is sin. Put off all hypocrisy, Peter says. All right, number four. I got five words here. Here's the fourth. Envy. Envy. Now, envy is very similar to covetousness. Covetousness is when I, I desire, I crave, or want something that you have that I don't have. I, I covet your, your quiet new sports car. I've got a, a, an old, noisy pickup truck. You've got a nice, quiet sports car. I covet, well, I covet the thing. But envy has to do with the person who has the thing that I'm coveting. I resent you for having a sports car. 
Why shouldn't I have the sports car? Now, some of you say, I'd rather have your truck. Well, I'm not trying to get rid of my truck. I'm just using this as an example. Envy has to do with the person and not the thing. So think of Joseph, for instance, in the Old Testament. And Jacob gave him what? A beautiful multicolored coat. Jacob, his father, gave him this beautiful coat. And Joseph's brothers coveted the coat and they envied Joseph. They resented him. And you can see the malice and envy so clearly in that example. It was so malicious, their envy, that they attacked him. They almost killed him. They wanted to kill him, their own brother. They wound up, as you know, you know the story, they sold him into slavery. This, this is, envy is malicious. So God says, get rid of all envy. We replace this with, by rejoicing with people who are rejoicing happy for them. And then the fifth word is slander. Now, slander literally is speaking against another person, speaking against them. It can include gossip. It's disparaging comments about them. James uses the verb form of this word in James 4.11. He says, don't speak against one another, brothers. In James 3, he writes, The tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Every once in a while when I'm presiding over a, uh, a funeral and doing a little, a little background research on the person whose life we're celebrating, uh, a comment will be made to me from family or friends to the extent that uh, she never said an unkind word about anyone. He never said anything malicious or slanderous about anyone. They didn't have something good to say, they just wouldn't say anything at all. I'm always so glad when I hear that. I know that I'm dealing with a person of character, someone who never slandered anyone else. When it comes to our time and someone is standing up speaking about me, speaking about you, will they be able to say that? Never said an unkind word about anyone. Now, I'm not talking about taking issue with a certain idea or debating the truthfulness of a doctrine. There's a place for all of that. Talking about attacking the person. I mean, you may say, well, wait a minute, Steve, because Jesus referred to these people as hypocrites and snakes and the Apostle Paul. He said some harsh things about different people. And that's true, and we should take that into consideration. But here's one thing to remember. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus, and I'm not Paul. I'm not even Paul. There are certain things that Jesus did that we can't do and should not. There are certain things he said because of who he was and what he knew, and even an apostle, that we can't necessarily do. Take that into consideration. If I'm going to err, I want to err on the side of being gracious and kind, loving and encouraging with my words, and not to slander. <clears throat> now, we, some, some might be thinking, see, that's true in general, but I know one, this one guy, he's the devil. He's got it coming. It wouldn't even be false. It's all true. And, I, you know, and if I talk to you for a little bit about the person you have in mind, I might agree with you. Yeah, she does have it coming. I agree. He's got it coming. But then... um. Think about this verse right here. Now, here's an interesting verse. Here's an interesting verse. Jude 9. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. 
Think about that in the context of what we're talking about right now. I know that's an odd verse. It's an odd verse for a lot of reasons, but Michael, the archangel, is disputing with the literal devil, and he will not bring a slanderous word against the devil. Now, if he won't bring a slanderous word against the devil, how can we justify bringing any kind of slanderous word against anyone? So, you may have children, grandchildren, or great-grandchildren in that baby stage, in the crawling stage. We still have a grandchild in the crawling stage, and you know how they are. When they're crawling around there on the ground, they'll put anything where? Right in their mouth. It's mulch, rocks, dirt, bugs. And what do we do? We caretakers. We run over there, spit that out. Spit that out. Yuck, yuck. And that's what Peter is saying right here. Spit this out. Yuck, yuck. No malice, no deceit, no hypocrisy, no envy, and no slander. Now, we'll flip it over for a second because then he goes on. So this, that first part is the stuff we're to put off. And the second thing about what he has to say is that the good stuff that we should always crave and desire and have in our lives and in our refrigerators, in our analogy. Verses 2 through 3. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now the word here... Uh, that you should long for means crave. is something that we crave as if we were drowning and trying to claw our way up to the top of the water so we could break through and get a gulp of air. We crave it. We desire it so strongly. And the milk that he's talking about is the milk of the Word of God. And he's using milk in a very positive sense of you know, there's nothing negative here, like the Hebrew writer says, you should have gone beyond milk. No, it's in general that this is the food, and the reason we're to crave it is because this is what causes a Christian to grow spiritually. Just as a baby grows by drinking pure, fresh milk, so likewise, spiritually, we can't grow if we're not craving and then consuming and digesting the pure milk of God's Word. The psalmist writes, Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for or craves for you, O God, but then transitions. How do we satisfy this craving? In part, through the word of God. Psalm 119.131, I opened my mouth wide and I panted for I longed for your commandments. Again, the word. The, the word for good is krestos. Christos. The word for Christ is Christos. The early Christians had a way of greeting each other that was a play on these two words. They said, Christos, Christos. Christ is good. You can use that today if you want to. You can use that, go out through the day, Christos, Christos. What? Christos, Christos. What do you mean? Christ is good. Christ is good. So, back to the baby analogy. How much, I did the research on this, how much milk do you think a baby drinks in a year? Anybody want to guess? I don't know how anybody would possibly know this. 
I'll tell you one thing. It's about 25 to 30 ounces per day. I don't know if anybody can do the math on that. But that comes out to around 83 gallons a year. Okay, so a baby's going to drink about 83 gallons of milk, newborn baby, per year. Now, here's the thing, though. The baby doesn't drink 83 gallons of milk in one sitting. That's spread out over a year. They don't even drink their 25 or 30 ounces per day in one feeding, do they, ladies? It's usually broken up of six to eight feedings. That's why parents of newborns, they don't get a good night's sleep until the teenagers move, you know, they grow up and move out. But so it's spread out. And likewise, sometimes a person will say, especially in January, I'm going to read, I'm going to read the Bible this year. I'm going to read through the whole Bible. But that doesn't mean that we sit down on January 1st and read all 1,200 pages of the Bible. That can be done, but it may not be the best way to consume and digest the Word of God. We want to spread that out. That's why I advocate, I'm going to do it again today. I'm such a big believer. This right here is one-year Bible divided up into 365 daily readings. So you read 15 minutes a day, Old Testament, New Testament, Psalm, and Proverb, and at the end of a year, you've read the entire Bible. Spread it out. I run 12 marathons a year. Did you know that? I can tell you how to run or walk 12 marathons a year. I do it one mile a day. So, figure, you know, one mile, marathon is 26.2 miles, one mile per day. I take Sundays off. You can take Sundays off, right? That's about a marathon per month. Now, technically, I'm playing with words there. That's not technically a marathon, but it's the same effect. And my point is, we, we spread these things out. We need our daily bread. Just like the manna in the Old Testament, God was teaching the Israelites something by giving them just enough manna for one day. They had to go out and gather it again the next day. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was out in the wilderness, and he was tempted by the devil, remember? And he'd been fasting for 40 days. And the devil came to him and said, eh, since you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus said, no. Remember what he said? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus prioritized spiritual food over physical food. That's where we want to get. That's where we want to get to. That the spiritual food is even more important to us than the physical food. And if we had to choose, most of us don't, but if we had to, we would choose the Word of God. Some of you are, have an exercise routine and you have for years. Others have struggled to establish that. But once it's established, you folks who love to run or to walk or do your exercise, you know if you don't get that exercise and you don't have to try anymore, you feel out of sorts if you don't, if you don't. And Likewise, it's hard sometimes to establish that Bible reading habit. It was for me. I think I was in the ministry for five years in the ministry, before I was actually doing daily devotions, reading the Bible every year. I mean, every day, rather. I'm embarrassed to admit that, but it's true. It's a, it can be a struggle. But if you're struggling with that, I encourage you to continue the struggle until it's established. Because as many of you know who read the Bible every day, if you don't read the Bible, for some reason, one day, you feel out of sorts until you do. You get to the point where you don't have to struggle anymore. You can't, you cannot not read God's Word. 
That's where we want to get. As Job said, Job 23, 12, I have treasured the words from God's mouth more than my daily food. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us today. As we've been doing this, this self-examination, Lord, you help us to rid these things that are bad for us, bad for others, and replace those with, with love, with, with words of encouragement, with rejoicing for others, and with the pure milk of your word in our lives so that by it you can help us to grow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.